Good morning. The reading for today is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and it's to be found on the Black Bible in front of you underneath the seat and the page number is 1188 and it begins on verse 13 with the heading, Believers Who Have Died. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief In the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and the children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together 
with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Thanks so much, Glennis, and a good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be with you. If you could keep your Bibles open there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1188, that would be super helpful to me, and I imagine might help you too. We'll pray and then we'll get um, right underway. Hey? Heavenly Father, thank you for um, just your kindness in, in drawing us together and your further kindness in speaking to us through your scriptures. So help us together to consider these words carefully that it might feed our souls so that we might love and follow Jesus with all our hearts. Amen. The whole idea of the bucket list is something I'd never heard of when I was growing up. And I don't think it was just because it wasn't relevant to me at that stage of my life. I just don't think it was a thing back then, you know. Uh, I blame Morgan Freeman, actually. But boy, it's a thing now, isn't it? Seems like you've got to have a long list of things that you want to do before you die in a pre-prepared and ready-made list. Otherwise, it might come up in conversation. And if you've got nothing, people are going to think you're boring. Of course, uh, not all bucket lists are equal, are they? I was reading one this week. It had 80 items on it. Some of them were very easy to achieve, like item 13, help a person in need. Or uh, item 23, buy the most expensive thing on a menu. Uh, It's called the large Big Mac value meal, isn't it? Just go and buy it, you know? Uh, Item 45, buy a nurse a cup of coffee. Great thing to do, doesn't need to go on your list, just go and do it, you know? Uh, Some of the items required a lot more kind of bravery, like item 19, attempt Mount Everest. I think they meant attempt to climb it. I don't know what else they could mean. Uh, Number 37, sail across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Number 58, save someone's life. I mean, that's big. But I think you'll discover the real problem with this person's list if I just read out to you the first few items. Okay, item number one, go skydiving. Fair enough. And number two, fly a plane. Look, mum, no hands. Uh, Number three, See the Northern Lights. I mean, they are magnificent, aren't they? Number four, get a tattoo. Uh, Number five, make a 1,000-metre shot, which I think has got something to do with rifles. And number six, hug a lion. Now, I just think that from that point on, the remaining 74 items are really just flights of fancy, aren't they? I mean, you are not really committed to anything beyond hugging a lion, uh, if it was me, I'd, I'd be putting that buy a nurse cup of coffee thing above it, um, probably the Big Mac meal thing too, just to kind of boost my list to 10 items. I, mean, I think if hug a line is a real thing, it should go at the very end of the list, you know, maybe number 80 uh, or perhaps 79 if, uh, if number 80 is miraculously surviving hugging a line. <laughs> I, uh, I said this at 8 o'clock in uh, morning tea time, they got their phones out, showed me pictures of their kids hugging these tigers. You look at the tiger, they're so heavily sedated, they're like, And uh, secondly, I just want to say, I didn't see any photos of the kids after I saw the photos of them hugging the tiger, you know, just saying. I had a bucket list once, had two items on it. Go to the Grand Canyon and read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. My friend said, it's a stupid list, Scott. It's stupid because uh, you can do it all in one weekend. You know, you can read the first half of Les Mis on the flight over, go to the Grand Canyon, read the second half on the way back. And it was a stupid list. And actually, so is the hug a lion list. So is every bucket list, perhaps, because they prepare you for the wrong thing or, or perhaps they prepare you in the wrong way. 
Seems to me, if I understand them, that a bucket list prepares you for death by making sure that you've made the most of your life, you haven't missed out on all available opportunities. But actually, what we learn today from 1 Thessalonians is that we need to instead prepare for death by being ready to meet Jesus. Regardless of when he returns, which we'll get to, if you want to prepare for death, be ready to meet him. I mean, see the Northern Lights, uh, the Grand Canyon, go skydiving, whatever. But if you are not preparing to meet the Lord, you are preparing for the wrong thing in the wrong way. Going to see that today. We are in the back end of a sharp little series we've been doing in 1 Thessalonians. It's called Pleasing God While We Wait, as you can see. And the while we wait bit is all about waiting for Jesus to return. And that's the main focus for today, I guess. It's the what, the how, the when of his return. And the first thing to see today is that we will all meet Jesus in the air. Now, when I say all, I mean all Christians, all believers, whether dead or alive at the return of Christ, we will all meet him when he returns. And I think this would have been of some encouragement to the Thessalonian believers, these fledgling baby Christians in this infant church, because it sounds to me like they expected Jesus to return very shortly after his resurrection and ascent back to heaven, uh, very shortly to kind of gather them into his everlasting arms and his eternal kingdom. And I wonder if that expectation might have even been behind the apostles' instruction in chapter 4, verse 11, that we looked at briefly last week, mind your own business and work with your hands. Maybe they thought the return of Jesus was so imminent There's no point working because who has ever put work real hard on their bucket list? And and though this document, the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians was very early and not long after the Apostle Paul's ministry among them before he was booted out of town, perhaps one or more of their number might have died and it stressed them out to think that a newly departed brother or sister might in fact miss out. And so read along with me, verse 13. Uh, We don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, those who have fallen asleep, as other versions put it. Here you must understand uh, that the Apostle Paul uses sleep as a metaphor for physical death. It was a common way of talking about it in those days. And if you think about it, it it actually works as a metaphor for physical death. Um, You know, because in that way, it's like you're asleep. You're sort of unconscious, you know, you're unmoving, you're lying down from distance. They both look the same. I wonder if you knew that actually our word for cemetery literally means the place of sleep from the same kind of uh, original word in the original language that you find here. So one or more of the Thessalonians had died, had fallen asleep before Jesus returned and they're distraught that their brother or sister in Christ might have missed out on being with him forever. They grieved like the rest of humanity. They grieved without hope. And at this point, I actually need to say sensitively that grieving without hope is an entirely appropriate response when we face the death of someone who did not know Christ as Lord. I I say sensitively because all of us is going to face an awful day when a beloved family member or friend who hadn't trusted in Christ dies. And grieving without hope is an appropriate response on that day. However, when a brother or sister in Christ dies, that is somebody who has turned and trusted in Jesus, we might grieve, but it seems to me we grieve mainly for ourselves. And we do not grieve without hope. 
Can you see that's actually what we're doing here? Sunday by Sunday and in the days between. We're not just playing church. What a waste of time that would be. We are together taking hold of the only hope that will prevail beyond the grave. Well, back in 1 Thessalonians, the way the Apostle Paul shows them that they need not grieve without hope, they need not grieve like the rest of humanity, it's entirely un-Australian. He doesn't go for all the usual platitudes that we hold out in the face of death. Uh, He had a good innings. You know, her work made a difference. Uh, He raised his children well. She got to see her grandchildren or or even great-grandchildren. He died doing something that he loved. Well, she'll be right, mate. Now, some of those platitudes might be true, but here the Apostle Paul gives concrete reasons, concrete facts, why we can have hope in the face of death. First fact in verse 14, he effectively reminds us that if God can bring Jesus back from the dead, it's not too much to believe. He can do the same for those who trust in Christ, who have also fallen asleep, who have also died physically. Have a look, verse 14. Jesus died and rose again, so God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I mean, it almost sounds like it's a simple mechanism, doesn't it? He's done it once, he can do it again. But I wonder if in his choice of words, the Apostle Paul is saying something rather more profound. Did you notice that he says, Jesus died, and yet he doesn't say, those who believe in him die. We merely fall asleep. Did you notice that? I wonder if what he is saying is that Jesus' death, okay, not Jesus sleeping, but Jesus' death, is the transforming death for all his followers, who from that point on will not die, but who will rather merely fall asleep waiting for his return. So that's the first, the first fact. It's really about the mechanism. He's done it once, he can do it again. But the second fact is about the order, and we read that from verse 15. I'd, I'd love you to read along with me from verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So you can see there's an order, right? You can see that? There's a schedule of events, which is a bit of a surprise, I must say. And yet it gives sure hope to any person who has lost a fellow believer in Christ, it is simply not the case that those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, will miss out. It's actually the case, surprisingly to me, that they will go first. They will precede all those who are still alive at the return of Jesus. And it doesn't seem like this is just a hypothesis, you know? It doesn't seem like this is just a working theory from the Apostle Paul. It's direct from the horse's mouth, as it were. According to the Lord's own word, it says in verse 15. It's either an unrecorded saying of Jesus or a direct revelation to the Apostle Paul. Now, here's how the order seems to work. Jesus will come down from heaven, that is, to earth. He will come down himself, that is, in his flesh. It's going to be in a highly noticeable way, which includes the loud command, like the voice of a charioteer to his horses, indicating urgency and authority. It's going to include the voice of an an archangel who is unnamed here because it's not important. And it's going to include the trumpet call of God because we're talking about a royal visitation. So Jesus will come down to earth in a highly visible, 
highly audible way. In other words, you will not be able to miss this first item in the sequence. But next item in the sequence, still in verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise. The dead in Christ will rise. Those buried in the ground. Those who've been cremated. Those who have been buried at sea, regardless of the state of their decaying corpses, or even if there is a lack of a corpse. Those who trusted in Christ and who have died will rise. The biology is not going to be a problem for God. If he can bring forth a universe at his command, he's going to have no problem reconstituting and reframing the bodies of departed believers into glorious new bodies. So here's the order. Christ's physical descent, then the dead in Christ will rise, and then thirdly it'll be the turn of all those believers who are still alive at the coming of Christ. And it says, intriguingly, that we will be caught up together with them because they go first in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air. And at this point you think, my goodness, that sounds a bit trippy, doesn't it? What on earth is going on with that? It's getting a bit weird. So a couple of things. If we're talking about clouds, it's the Bible's way of talking about a divine appearance. I mean, that makes sense. If we're talking about in the air, that's normally in the Bible's language, the abode of evil spirits and the like. So the Apostle Paul is saying that when Christ returns, he's going to rule over it all. The heavens, the earth, and the air between. And when he talks about meet him in the air, the word meet is a technical term for the official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary. It's like a red carpet reception. Like if the queen was going to crash at your crib, Right? You wouldn't make her kind of catch the train from the airport and then jump on the beeline before getting you know, the hop, skip and jump free bus service to your place. I suspect you're going to wash your car. You'll shake out those mats. You'll vacuum the interior, put on one of those new air freshener things and you will go and collect her and you will drive on your very best behavior. Right? Now, meeting Jesus in the air, it's just a meeting place. He's royalty after all, but it's not the final abode. And look, if you're really disturbed by the whole kind of flying thing that seems to be going on, I would say, what on earth are you worried about? Is that not going to be awesome? You seriously don't think that when we rise from our slumber, we might have upgraded bodies and capabilities. For myself, I'm really looking forward to that upgrade, both in terms of my reconstituted uh, new heavenly body and the renewed heavens and earth, the whole restored cosmos thing. Uh, I've actually, in fact, started my anti-bucket list. It's a list of things I'm going to do after I have risen from physical death at the return of Jesus. Great first item, going to grow hair, real hair. (laughs) Been a long time. And I'm going to grow it out, you know, like a first-year Sydney University student be really ironic as I flick it around in the wind. I'm going to ride my bicycle up pristine alpine passes until I'm spent and breathless in the thin mountain air but have no ongoing niggles. I might even see if I can get that outswinger just kind of clicking the topper off. 
Um, if you're a swimmer or maybe you, you've been a swimmer in the past, I wonder if you will glide through water sleek and smooth like a dolphin, except that you'll actually be swimming with dolphins and the, the fish and the reefs below will explode with colour and life. Or if you're a, a, a surfer or you have been a surfer, maybe you'll slide along thick and unbroken glassy barrels of warm ocean water. If you're a gardener, maybe you'll sit on your deck overlooking a magnificent kind of Tuscan landscape. You know the ones where cypress trees line a distant winding road in the background and in the foreground are just rows of productive vines that you've tended all day. Maybe that's you. Do you know what number six is on my anti-bucket list? I'm going to hug a lion. (laughs) Just because I can, you know? (laughs) But you know, friends, um, all that, you know, the, the where and the the what and the how, it's just um, a mist, you know, fog, a vapour. Really, really just a sidebar or a footnote to the most important detail. We will be with him forever. After the mechanism has been described, after the sequence has been laid out for us, the Apostle Paul finishes chapter 4 with these climatic and gripping words. Climactic, actually, it's not about the weather. Read with me verse 17. And so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You know, friends, being with Jesus is the pinnacle, and I wouldn't even say the high point. I would say the whole point of our Christian lives. And I, for myself, can hardly wait. In the meantime, well, I am encouraged by that. How about you? So that is the first thing that our passage reveals. It reveals that we will all meet with Jesus in the air. The second part reveals when this will happen, and that is sometime, sometime with a question mark. Believers will meet with Jesus in the air sometime at a time that we, we uh, don't know about. Just as Jesus, while he was on earth, did not know about the time of his return, the Apostle Paul does not know about the timing of that return just as Jesus in the gospels and even in revelation describe his coming as like a thief in terms of its surprising timing the apostle Paul adds in the night a thief in the night intensifying that surprise when will all believers meet Jesus in the air the answer is sometime with a question mark at a surprising time that we cannot predict now, Chris, can I just get you to shut those doors, man? It's blowing a gale across me. Thanks, brother. Make sure you're on the inside when you are. <laughs> I don't want anyone to miss out. <laughs> Thank you, my man. The return of Jesus, it's going uh, to be obvious, isn't it? It's going to be global. Uh, it's being visible and audible. But um, it's also going to be, almost contrastingly, sudden and unpredictable. It says that it's going to bring about destruction at the very hour on which people are reassuring that we live in a time of peace and safety. I mean, does that sound like today? And that hour would not only be sudden and unpredictable like a thief in the night, but once it comes, it'll be inescapable. Just as once a, a woman feels labor pains, the birth is, un, is in motion. It's happening. You, you can't do anything to stop it or unwind it. Now friends, the talk of nighttime thievery and painful labour, it's meant to arrest our attention. It's meant to arrest our attention now so that we're not surprised then. It's meant to awaken us now so that we are not found sleeping then. 
And as the passage continues, that is the apostle's basic message from verse 4. This day should not surprise us like a thief. Raise your hand if you've ever been robbed. A lot of unlucky people. If you've been robbed, you know it is a hassle because the thieves never take the stuff you want to get rid of anyway, do they? They always go after the stuff you want to keep. We got robbed um, quite a few years ago now, about 8.30 on a Saturday morning. Our next-door neighbours were hosting a birthday party for their two-year-old granddaughter at the time. And so we asked them whether they saw anything. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we saw some guys go into your house. I'm like, okay. Did you think to say anything to them when you saw them come out with my TV? You know? Could have been worse, though. I, I had a friend of mine. He was once burgled, and they even nicked his underpants. It's like, how much are they going to fetch at cash converters, you know? If you get robbed when you're not ready, it's not just a hassle. It's a, it's a nasty surprise, isn't it? You might lose your TV. You might even lose your undies. Man, the stakes are much higher, though, if you're unprepared for the coming of Christ. But this is not surprising or alarming if you're a Christian person, right? Because we don't live in the night. We live in the day. We don't live by darkness, by which he doesn't mean ignorance as much as just the threat of judgment. He says we live by the light, which is not just kind of knowledge. It means the, the transformation that Jesus wants to work in each of our lives. And so going with the whole night and day thing, the apostle gives the Thessalonian Christians the obvious instruction in verse 6. Be awake and sober, not asleep and drunk. Now it's important to understand he's using the metaphor of sleep here differently to chapter 4. In fact, it's a different word for sleep in the original language. It's one which connotates kind of moral indifference. You know, I just don't care. And he's saying to Christian people, you want to be mentally and morally alert. You don't want to be mentally and morally asleep. The way you're likely to miss out on being part of God's eternal kingdom when Jesus returns is not by dying too early like the Thessalonians were stressed about. It's more by not actually being alert and self-controlled by being mentally and morally, morally asleep. Now, it doesn't sound to me like this was an immediate risk for the Thessalonian Christians, but it always helps to be reminded, don't you think? He wants us to be self-controlled. That's what sober means in verse 6. He wants us to be at our battle stations, verse, verse 8, dressed for battle with faith and love and hope. He reminds us that the, the point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but pointedly in verse 10, his life, is to gift us salvation rather than leave us for the judgment that our sins and shortcomings rightly deserve. He says, I don't want you to miss out on this. Well, how do we be self-controlled and sober? How do, how do we be mentally and morally alert? Look, dozens, hundreds, I don't know, thousands of ways, I guess. Here's a few to chew on. He uses the word sober metaphorically. I might suggest that it's going to be difficult to be sober metaphorically if you're not sober literally. And, and at this point, I'm not talking to brothers and sisters and friends among us who are dealing with alcoholism, dealing with it. The last thing I want to do is discourage people who are facing up to their battles and bravely addressing them. I have deep admiration for you if that is you. Bravo, sir. Chapeau, madame. 
But I am talking about the creeping spread and hold that alcohol has upon us. You know, in our country, we have got an alcohol problem. Northern beaches, my goodness, we've got an alcohol problem. Every strata of our community is riddled with it. And Australians, we're so arrogant and stupid sometimes. We look at the gun culture in America with disdain and we're blind to the over-drinking culture in our own country and its vast impact upon our community. Did you know that alcohol is responsible for 30% of road accidents, 44% of fire injuries, 34% of falls and drownings, 16% of child abuse cases, 10% of industrial accidents. It causes one Australian death every 90 minutes. Now, I'm not advocating for a new temperance movement and I don't mind a cleansing ale or a drop of red from time to time, but I do wonder whether as Christian people we are more into our liquor than we ought to be, all things considered. Whether we speak of it as though it's going to be the thing that will make things right at the end of a hard day, rather than an extra measure of God's grace that we might have prayed for, or the encouragement of a Christian conversation we sought after. I will leave that with you, but it's going to be hard to be metaphorically sober if we're not literally sober. We're going to need to be self-controlled with what passes through our lips in terms of liquor. We're also going to need to be self-controlled with what comes out of our lips in terms of our words, making sure that we say things when we need to say them. We're not good at that. We balk at it. But also making sure that our words are thoughtful and truthful and not unnecessarily damaging. So much of the way that we express love and encouragement and discouragement to one another is by the use of our words. Maybe you'd like to think, maybe this would be a good thing to think about, talk about over lunch. What else should go on my self-control list? What else should go on my alert list? What things will help you be ready for the coming of Jesus? What will stop you from snoozing spiritually so that you are in no danger of missing out on Jesus' salvation on the day he visits us? You know, friends, as we finish up, our um, a passage in chapter 5 concludes the exact same way the chapter 4 finishes with a reminder that we will be with the Lord together. Have a look at 5 verse 10. He died for us so that we may live together with him. If you want to have a bucket list, that's okay with me. Uh, I mean, just make sure it's not a long list of self-indulgent luxuries that you'll be embarrassed about when you meet poor believers in heaven. That'd be awkward. Uh, and make sure that it doesn't so distract you that you're unprepared for the return of Jesus. But I can tell you one thing. The Grand Canyon will be like a crack in the pavement. The northern lights will be a dim, dim glow compared to the splendor of being with Jesus into eternity when we will see his face. I'm not an especially touchy-feely kind of guy, but I do think, this is my plan, when I meet with Jesus, I will hug him until it gets awkward and not before then. I will not let go until one of the angels taps me on the shoulder and tells me to move along because it's getting just a bit embarrassing for everyone. Let's read verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 again. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, 
we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Well, friends, I am encouraged. How about you? Let's pray for one another. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for these words, for how they encourage us that we need not grieve without hope, that all who trust in you will meet with you. I want to thank you for these words, for the way they warn us not to miss out on that day by being unprepared or distracted or inalert or not self-controlled. So we ask that you might encourage us with the hope and challenge us by this warning so that we might be with you forever. And we pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen.